I have been wading through a cold this week. And uh, I still am, to be honest. Uh, so I, I want to acknowledge right up front that I'm leaning very heavily this week on the thoughts of Sidney Gridanus and his Ecclesiastes commentary. I very much benefited from it. And through the, uh, the soup of my cold, I was struggling uh, to come with a lot of brighter thoughts. So I just want to acknowledge that uh, this morning. Why don't you pray with me that God will give me strength to preach and that we would hear God speaking to us. Let's pray. Father, it has been our joy to lift our eyes up from ourselves and to consider and behold you, the, the mighty God who created all things and yet who came in human flesh uh, to redeem us, to save us. We want to thank you for all that you have done for us in Christ that we can come and call you Father. And so we pray that you'd help us now. Help me in my weakness uh, Lord, help each one of us uh, to put away the distractions uh, of this past week. Lord, to put away the, uh, the empty, uh, foolish cries of this world that we may be reminded of who you are and that we may come in reverent worship, a worship that will go through the whole of our week. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. We do not live in a culture that fears God. That's just not the world we live in anymore, is it? We're, we're surrounded by society that does not fear God. Just a simple illustration of that. Um, the words, Oh my God, trip off so many tongues and lips in the culture around us that show our utter disregard for who God is. Uh, so much so that actually now uh, the, 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 the letters O-M-G uh, have now become kind of something that's put into advertising slogans. It's almost become a brand that's linked to accessories and clothes. O-M-G, look at this. We live in a culture that does not fear God. David Wells, in his book, God in the Wastelands, uh, wrote these words. It's a lengthy quote, so I've put them up on the PowerPoint so you could follow them with me. It is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. That God is weightless. I do not mean by this that he is ethereal, but rather he has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. He has lost his saliency for human life. Those who assure the pollsters of their belief in God's existence may nonetheless consider him less interesting than television. His commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence. His judgment no more awe-inspiring than the evening news, and his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. That is weightlessness. It is a condition that we've assigned him after having nudged him out to the periphery 
of our secularized life. Weightlessness tells us nothing about God, but everything about ourselves, about our condition, about our psychological disposition to exclude God from our reality. That's the air we breathe, isn't it? God does not weigh upon us one bit. We have had this aggressive, secularizing push to want to push God to your private considerations, out of the public square, not part of our public debate. And as soon as you bring presuppositions that your statements are involved with God in some way, you're written off as a nutter and to be excluded. Now what what does God have to say about this? Well, please open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. You find that on page 670 in these uh, red church Bibles. If you, don't, if you don't have a Bible with you, just reach over, uh, ask someone to get hold of a Bible, and turn to page 670. I'm just going to read the first 15 verses. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What does the worker gain from his toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and to do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that men will revere him. This is God's word. The teacher who, uh, whose words we've just read looked out on, on the, his uh, society around him and he just saw people kind of busily getting on with trying to make a profit, trying to be a success, trying to uh, make the most out of life, get every opportunity they could out of life, and do so 
with little regard to God. And so he, he writes these words to counter that, and he does so by reminding us uh, in a very gentle way to begin with that there is a time for everything. 3 verse 1, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. Human life is not haphazard. There's a proper time for everything under heaven. And he illustrates this with this poem where there are 28 mentions of time. It's a time for this and a time for that. And it sounds like a, a ticking clock when you read it. An endless, relentless ticking clock. And this is true of life. It keeps pressing on whether you want it to or not. Time keeps progressing. Time for this, a time for that, a time for this, a time for that. And time just keeps rolling on. Whatever happens, there is nothing you can do to stop it. It just keeps rolling forward. And it starts with the bookends of our life. Uh, there is a time to be born and, and a time to die. We don't decide when we are to be born, do we? Don't have a lot of say into it. We are born. We don't have a lot of say of when we're going to die. These are the realities of our life. There are things beyond our control. And even within life, uh, there are uh, seasons and appropriate times that, again, we don't have control over. There's a time to uh, plant, it says, verse 2, and a time to uproot. The gardener must abide by the seasons of spring, summer, autumn, and winter. You know, you can... Try and plant your flowers in the middle of winter, but you're a bit foolish to do so. Nothing's going to happen. The frost will kill whatever you put in the soil. If you want to make things fresh, you have to abide with the seasons, the set times that are there. There's an appropriate time to kill and a time to heal. You cannot kill any time. But in times of self-defense or in a just war, there may be times where it's appropriate to kill. And there are times too for healing. Uh, when uh, peace, uh, peace treaties are signed and, and life must be preserved and war is over and we heal up those who are hurt. There's a time, verse 3, to tear down and a time to build. We saw the missiles pouring into Baghdad, producing shock and awe. These incredibly expensive missiles destroying bridges and buildings. And then, not long after, a colossal amount of money is spent rebuilding the bridges. Rebuilding uh, a broken culture that we trashed. There's a time for breaking down. There's a time to build. There's a time to weep. Verse 4, there's a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. When you go to funerals, that is a time to weep and mourn, isn't it? It is the appropriate time to do so. When you go to a wedding, it's not considered good form to be weeping and mourning. It is a time for rejoicing. It's time for dancing for joy. These are the appropriate times. 
uh, verse 5, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. Uh, in, in ancient times, in, in, in times of warfare, you wouldn't throw, uh, you know, bombs onto fields. You didn't have bombs. You'd throw stones. You'd make it very difficult for the place you're invading to keep doing agriculture. You'd throw stones all over the fields. There'd be time for that. But then be a time in peace to gather up those stones and return to agriculture. There's a time when we embrace our enemies and there's a time when we do not. Verse 5. There's a time, verse 6, to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away. There's a time, isn't there, to acquire possessions. When you have children, when babies turn up, what a lot of stuff you have to get. The cribs, the travel cots, the, the seats... Uh, the feeding tables, all this sort of stuff. And there's a time when children leave and, and you don't really need all this stuff and all this space and people downsize. There's a time to give things away. Verse 7, there's a time to tear and a time to mend. In the ancient world, a way that you'd express your grief would be the ripping of your clothes. But there's a time too where the appropriate time of mourning and grief is over and there's a time to mend those clothes. There's a time to be silent and a time to speak, verse 7. And uh, Job's friends did well at the beginning, didn't they? When they sat with Job who'd experienced all this loss and they sat in silence with him. And the mistake was that they started speaking, wasn't it? There's a time to be silent. There's a time... It's appropriate to speak. Verse 8, there's a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war, a time for peace. And in world politics, uh, this has ever been the ebb and flow of, of the history of nations and empires. This is human life. And the teacher wants us to look at life and recognize that that is so. There is a time for everything. Everything, a season for every activity under heaven. And then he comes back to this searching question, verse 9. What does the worker gain from all his toil? And what's the expected answer? Nothing. Nothing. Did you notice how each activity cancels out another? Well, yes, there's a time to be plumbed, but there's a time to die. Nothing is left. There's a time to plant flowers, and there's a time to uproot them. There's a time to break down, and a time to build up. Nothing changed. There's a time to have trams and rip up the tram tracks, and there's a time to put them back in again. (laughs) Nothing changes. This is not what we see in the world today. The relentless ebb and flow, and really what has been gained... A lot of debt, a lot of nothing. And the deeper question is this, who sets the times? If there is a time for everything, who sets the times and why are they set in that way? And that's what we're caused to consider by the teacher as we look at verse 10. (coughs) Sorry. I've seen the burden God has laid on men. He's made everything Beautiful in his time. Do you see who sets the time? The sovereign God 
has set the times. He's the one who's made everything beautiful in his time. He's the one who, who says that there are certain times where things are appropriate and where they're not. The right time and the wrong time. He sets the time for our birth and our death. He determines the seasons. He determines the right time for uh, sowing and planting and the time for reaping and uprooting. God sovereignly sets all these times. And we read in Galatians uh, earlier in our service that God also set the time when Jesus was to be born. Galatians 4. But when the time had fully come. God had set the times in history and there was a time that God had set when Jesus would come. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. God himself, who sets the times and sets the seasons, entered into time, took on human flesh with the very purpose to redeem our limited time-born lives. Limited by our sin and our death, he came to redeem us. and Bring us into this wonderful new position of being adopted into the family of the eternal God. God set that time when that would come into place. And Jesus profoundly had this awareness uh, in his life and ministry. He began his ministry, Mark's Gospel tells us in chapter 1, by saying this, The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. The time had come. Jesus knew that God had set a time for his death. So shortly before his crucifixion, Jesus told his disciples to go ahead into the city of Jerusalem uh, to a certain man and to tell him this. The teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. And on that night, Jesus uh, changed the Old Testament Passover to, uh, for his disciples to become the Lord's Supper, taking the cup. He gave thanks and offered it to them, saying this, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, he said, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it anew with you, anew with you in my Father's house. Jesus died at the appointed time. He knew that he would have to suffer and die. It must take place, he said. He knew that he would rise from the dead as God had given the appointed time. He must rise from the dead. And before he ascended into heaven, we met with his disciples, and you can read this in Acts chapter 1. And they said to him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates that the Father has set by his own authority. You see, it's not for us, mere creatures, to know these times. God has sovereignly set these times. He knows what they are, but it's not for us to know them. And then the angel assured the disciples, uh, this same Jesus, who has been 
taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go to heaven. There is a time set for the return of King Jesus. In God's time, Jesus will come again to establish his kingdom on earth. God has made everything beautiful in his time. This is the God who is there. Sovereignly setting the appointed times. And that's what the teacher continues in verse 11 to say. He has set, also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Just as Jesus had told his disciples, it's not for you to know the times, the Old Testament teacher declares that human beings cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. We do, as human beings, have this profound sense that we fit somewhere in history. We know that there was a, a past before us. We can conceive of a day when we're not, and history will continue. God has given us, as human beings, this sense of a past and a future. He's set eternity into our hearts. And that's why we're fascinated by history. Uh, there's never a moment when on TV there's not some program about history. Uh, right now, Andrew Marr is doing the history of the world. Uh, you see programs where people are fascinated to discover their genealogies, to go back and, and wonder who their great-great-grandparents were, where that sheds any light on where they've come from. And also, we love to look into the future. Uh, we have books and TV shows and movies that are full of science fiction, trying to wonder what the future is going to look like for us. Uh, Ridley Scott has just, um, his film Prometheus has just come out on DVD, and uh, it's a pretty gory film, probably not for everybody, but uh, in it he's asking all the big questions. Uh, am I created? If I was, why was I created? Is there a purpose? Is there a point? to my life? Can I know my creator? All those big themes are being played out in Ridley Scott, who I don't think is a believer in his sci-fi movie. We, are, we have eternity in our hearts. We're asking these big questions. But our problem is kind of like this. We, we are, our faces are up close to a great work of art. And all that we see on the canvas is like splodges of paint. Have you ever done this? Have you ever kind of put your nose up close to... Um, an impressionistic painting. They don't like it, actually, if you do it, but uh, uh, you can. You know, you get a, in Glasgow, there's a fantastic amount of impressionistic paintings in, 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 uh, in the Calvin Grove Art Gallery. And you can get up really close when no one's looking. And all you see is tiny little dots. And it's, well, you know, the colorful dots, they're nice dots, but it doesn't, it, you can't make sense of it. You have to step back. And, and see what is being conveyed. And the problem that we have as human beings is that we are time-bound. We know that there's a bigger canvas, but we are limited in our perspective, and our faces are up close to this masterpiece of what God is doing. And all we can see is the splodges. We can't see the whole. We can't see what God is doing from the beginning to the end. That is, that is the agony, the burden that we have as human beings. One of the glorious things of the gospel is that we come to see what God's big purpose is. 
Uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, it says this, that he has made known the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. This is where history is going. God is bringing all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. That is why it is wonderful that Peggy is spending time wanting to uh, share the good news of Jesus uh, in the country she's a part of because she knows this is where history is heading. This is why we are investing in, in Christianity Explored courses and being keen to want to share the good news of others because we actually know what the big picture is. We know the, the broad contours of it. But even as believers, we have to admit that there are limitations to our perspective. We don't know all the ins and outs of, of why things happen in our lives the way they happen. Why the sadnesses? Why the sorrow? Why the discouragements? We, we only see them close up. God hasn't revealed to us yet the fullness of how this beautiful tapestry, this beautiful artwork will, will look as we step back in all eternity and gaze upon it. We, we look just as the rise of the Ecclesiastes up close. And we don't see it all. Why has God made it like that? Why has God put us into this world where there are seasons for things and seasons for other things and, and our life is time-bound, where there's time to be born and the time to die, and this constant sense of there's something bigger than us, but we, but we live in a frustrated life in the middle that's stuck just in a part of it. Why has God done this? We'll have a look at verse 14. It is the key. I know that everything God does will endure. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that men will revere him. Do you see the total contrast between us and God in these verses? I think that's what struck me most this week as I studied it. And when we go through life uh, ever-changing but making no lasting change, scattering stones only to pick them up again, tearing down, building up. As human beings, we are capable of great things, but as time rolls on, our greatest achievements turn to dust. <laughs> I've been watching some of that Andrew Mars program, History of the World, and these great, great empires and their great palaces that are now dust. Gone. That's our life. But... Everything God purposes will inevitably be done and will last forever. And this has been done with this specific purpose that we will come to recognize the difference between us as creatures and our maker, our creator. God has done this. He set this limitation so that uh, our prideful ego would be humbled. And that we would come to worship with reverence and awe the living God. We live in a secularized culture that's trying to live in this myth. Often quoted are the words of Invictus. 
It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. How ironic that those words are often used at funerals. The very fact that you're standing at a funeral tells you you're not master of your fate. You're not captain of your soul. And the secularized world is living in la-la fantasy lands when we think that actually we ultimately control our destiny, that we are self-sufficient, that we can do without God. No, God actually has set up the world in such a way that we will be constantly frustrated by the reality of what we can achieve. Uh, we're, we're in conference season, aren't we? The politicians get up there and tell us what a great thing they're going to do. How they're going to change Britain forever. I love the aspiration. I love a bit of hope. But let's be honest, the next guy comes in and, and he says, well, I can't really do much. He was such a mess by the last guy. And, and, you know, Obama has having to struggle with all the promises of hope and then the reality of what he's been able to do because we're limited. We know what we'd like to have. We'd like to have perfect utopia. We cannot create it. We cannot make it. And it is all done to humble us so we will come and worship the living God. What he does will last forever. I think even as Christians, we need to be aware that we breathe this secularized air we get conformed by its thinking. We buy into this privatized faith. I'll keep quiet about it. We buy into a, a godless state where we, re, re, where we really acknowledge the God who has made us and sustains us. Do you know what? God is not just like my best friend. God is utterly holy. He's utterly unique. The Lord Jesus uh, once said these sobering words, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Time is a tyranny for those who refuse to acknowledge God and busily go about their life uh, under heaven thinking that they are in charge. Because they will come up, sooner or later, up to this reality of the utter futility of life. The shortness of it, its brevity, and how little impact we really have at the end of the day. The best life that we will know is a fleeting short one if, we, if we're living life just for ourselves. And then beyond that, beyond our death, we will face this eternal God in judgment. Don't be frightened of the people who can kill your body. Be frightened of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell, says Jesus. But for the people who will face facts and fear God, putting our trust in Jesus to forgive our sins, there is a profound comfort in knowing that this sovereign God is our Heavenly Father. Actually, instead of it being a tyranny that there's a time for this and a time for that, a God who sovereignly appoints all time, 
when I come to realize that the God who sovereignly sets all things is my loving heavenly Father. That changes everything, doesn't it? That changes everything. Jesus encourages us to pray uh, these, these two realities in the first part of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven. It is an amazing balance, isn't it, of the utter transcendence and sovereignty of God. He is in heaven, we are upon earth, and yet the one in heaven, because we are trusting Jesus, we are invited to call him our Father. Well, what a blessing to go through a life where there's tick-tock, tick-tock, relentlessness, a time for this, a time for that, and it is over so soon to know that each of those times of my life are sovereignly held in the loving hands of my Father God. What a comfort. We too, like uh, King David, can say the words of Psalm 31, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. What a joy to know that. Is that your confidence? If you are apart from Christ, can I say, uh, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And today you could enter from being an enemy of God to being a friend of God by putting your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, by turning away from this uh, willful living for yourself and trusting and relying on what Jesus has done for you. You can be forgiven of all your sins and you can come into this unique relationship of calling God your Father. You can enter into this rest and joy of saying with David, you are my God. My times, both the good times and the tragic times, my times are in your hands. And we can be certain, even if it should be that we should die before Jesus comes back, that we too will enter into his everlasting kingdom. There is a time set. There's a time coming when Jesus Christ comes again. We're nearer to it today than we were yesterday. What a joy. My time is in his hands. Let's pray.